Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain the leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm interviewing a new friend, someone I met through Exponential, the learning cohorts that we It's a pretty exciting story to tell about how he's wedded a legacy church, church he's been pastor of for not too long of a time, but a church that has a real long history to uh, the needs of younger people in the community, helping people stir things up employment-wise, some really exciting and different things. And just welcome to the podcast, Joel. Yeah, I'm glad to be with you today. Thank you. So why don't you just start out a little bit by telling us how you got in ministry in the first place? I felt uh, a call to ministry really young. I mean, Jesus got my heart young. I knew that's, you know, where I was going to be headed. What I didn't expect was that I would end up coming back to the church that I grew up in. And but that's what happened. So while I was still in college, uh, I had done a couple of years in ministry uh, during the summers at a community development organization on the north side of Pittsburgh. Had some good mentors there. And uh, we saw an opportunity to launch a similar program in a public housing community near the church where I grew up in. And then um, after that program launched, I ended up being called by that church to be the youth pastor and then ended up being co-pastor of that church and then eventually lead pastor. How old is the church? (laughs) Yeah, so this year, the Gospel Tabernacle turns 104 years old. So uh, great history. There was um, a revival in Pittsburgh over a hundred years ago. And out of that revival, a a bunch of churches were planted and we were one of the churches that were planted in our, in our region during that time period. From what I understand, you've been able to do what I think I would do if I ever inherited a church. And that is that you've built on the legacy of other people. A lot of people want to come in and tear down the legacy or erase the past. Give us a little detail. Take us into your thinking, kind of things that you've done. Obviously, you you became the pastor of a church where they knew you, but it would have been older people who sometimes don't trust new ideas. You know, wander around a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So after I was youth pastor at the church for a while, I ended up in a co-pastoring arrangement with a guy named Jim Eaton. And Jim, Jim's family also had a long history with the church. Uh, mine did too, by the way. My great-grandparents met Jesus in this church. So both of us had a long history connected to the church. And I think it's a, you know, we're in Western Pennsylvania. I think it's a very Western Pennsylvanian thing to honor where we're from and to honor the legacy that that we find ourselves in. And so I think that was just very present in me and Jim from the beginning. And so it was interesting when we started at the church, uh, we ended up holding like a homecoming weekend. It was actually the 93rd church anniversary. So it, it was kind of a weird year. Like it didn't make sense that, you know, we would do something on the 93rd year, but we were like, this is where we need to start. We need to start by honoring our past because there was so much good there. I mean, 
uh, you know, there were stories of some of the people who started the church just doing really missional things. And so we said, let's build on that and begin by honoring all of these stories, which really were stories of mission. You know, it, it was stuff that we agreed with, you know, it was just in a different time period. And so I think it was a very trust building thing um, to listen to those stories, to figure out how to honor them. Um, but it was also, I think, you know, an, an important sanctifying thing for us to um kind of come underneath those stories and figure out what God's original intent was for this church when he imagined it. How did you build out from there? I would say for a long period of time, the changes at the church were really incremental and quite slow. That's just how it had to happen, you know, within the structure of the gospel tabernacle itself. But while we were slowly leading change and honoring relationships at the gospel tabernacle, uh, we were also finding ways to express mission creatively in our community. So our church is, is uh, located in a, a community that uh, for many, many years had an active steel mill, like, like is often the case in Western Pennsylvania, that mill closed. And so a lot of our community lives in poverty, and that's been the case for about three generations now. And so we were leading change at the church, but simultaneously we were starting new missional expressions in the community that were connected by a dotted line to the church but actually weren't ministries of the church per se um, we were just starting them in relationship you know with the church and so uh, one of those first expressions was a youth development organization called Aliquippa Impact that started to provide mentoring and after school summer day camp programs for kids experiencing poverty and uh, that gave us the opportunity to uh, be nimble in mission, to try new things, to have iterations of success and failure that might not have been possible in a more established church context, but we were able to do those things kind of to the side. And the more we engaged that and started to experience Jesus in new ways in our community, the greater and greater impact that had on the church itself over time. So you didn't see this as a feeder to the church. You saw this as the church going into the world to minister to the world. Yes, totally. It was right to do this just because it was right to do this. You know, this is this is what Jesus was already doing in our community and we were just joining him, you know, in that. You know, I remember maybe a few years into it, I got a call from someone at the church who said, "Hey, it doesn't feel like all this work we're doing in the community is resulting in increased attendance at our church. And uh, I had to agree with him. Um, yeah. It did not seem it did not seem that that's what was happening. But uh, we were coming back with stories, you know, on the other hand, all of these testimonies of ways that we were seeing, you know, Jesus show up in the lives of kids and families. Kind of the paradox there is that in time, our church did begin to grow, you know, and the church did come back to life. But I would say, it wasn't like this gimmick, you know, it wasn't this right. plan to try to reach out to grow our church or something like that. It was just right to serve the community. And as we did that, our church started to change. You know, one of the things that frustrates me about church today is that almost everything that we hear of in ministry, every innovation somehow gets turned into a, a church growth mechanism. Down through history where a church has changed society, it's always been where the, the, the corn of wheat has fallen into the ground and died, that we've, mm -hmm. we've been willing to die to ourselves, lay ourselves right. in the line for those other people. 
And eventually, something does happen that we would have to call church growth. But when that seems to be our primary motive, it almost seems to work against us. You know, one of the things that intrigued me when we talked before is by doing the kind of outreach that you're doing in the community, you're reaching people who are different than the people who are, you know, the your typical church attenders. Talk about that. You know, we, we live in this era where we spend so much time talking about you know, widening the net and and reaching different kind of people and all that. And and yet so often what ends up in our church looks a lot like the pastor. But you're able to to touch lives of people who are who are not Joel Repic. Yeah. So just to paint that picture, so our, our church was kind of a historically working class uh and middle class white church, but in in say a five mile radius around the gospel tabernacle at the time our community had become about 40% African-American and uh, a large portion of our community was experiencing poverty. And so it was a different demographic. There was a story of repentance there, um, ongoing repentance, because there were certain neighborhoods and sections of our community that we were passing over, you know, we were not paying attention to or altogether avoiding. And so some of the initial change happened when a few of us decided to relocate into the community where we had started this day camp program. And I think one of the greatest blessings early on was that um, we really didn't have money to run too many programs. I mean, we were, we were running this, you know, summer day camp program through this new organization that we had created, Aliquip Impact. But beyond that, we really didn't have funding for you know, programs. And I think that really was a blessing because if we had, I think it would have changed our story. Instead, we just had to be neighbors, you know, and learn to be present in the community. And I think fundamentally that involved embracing a posture of weakness, even, even with the program itself. um, One day I realized, although we were operating this program in a building owned by the housing authority in the middle of this community that was a different demographic than what our church had, you know, traditionally been in relationship with, um, I realized that it was still my turf, you know, the, the uh, kids and parents that were coming to this program were still stepping onto turf that I had created, you know, I had created this program. And I was like, we're never going to get to know the community this way. And I think many times, we are dependent on programs to negotiate our relationships with unbelievers. Um, the programs create, uh, and, and I'm not anti-program. I've, I've created a lot of programs, our community needs programs, but um, we're dependent on these things to define kind of the power dynamics between us and our unbelieving friends. And so we just had to break that down. And what that looked like, I still have it written in my journal in 2006. It was like, tonight we go to the streets. Um, And it looked like us just being present. You know, I live in a community that has an architecture that lends itself to being outside when the weather is warm. We have a lot of front porches and densely populated neighborhoods and sidewalks. And it looked like us just walking around and listening to people and letting them teach us and hearing, you know, what was in their hearts. And in in the midst of that, we ended up having lots of conversations about Jesus and his gospel and the good news of the kingdom. Uh, but it looked like us figuring out how to do mission from weakness. Um, and I think that's scary for a lot of people. I mean, maybe most scary for pastors because we we kind of seem like the experts in our curated 
context, right? Like within the church, out in the community, my degrees didn't really matter. You know, my ministry designs really didn't matter. It was us just listening and getting to know people. I think that was a game changer for us and an ethos that has stuck with us all these years. I know that you you uh, studied urban studies at Eastern University for that's right. Yeah. Four years. And yet yeah. you kind of boil it down to taking a position of weakness and, and, and walk in the community and getting to know people. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, whether it's that urban studies degree or my theological degrees, I mean, they were very helpful, you know, in many ways, what I learned at Eastern taught me to go low, you know, in the community. And I'm grateful for the professors who modeled and taught that to me. But yeah, they didn't position me to be any kind of expert in the community. I mean, there's no shortcut around just the part of going low and, and trying to embrace humility and listening to people. And I would say the more cultural distance there is between us and the place that, that Jesus has called us to be, the more listening is going to be required, the more weakness is going to be required. But that weakness opens up space for God to write the story that only he can write. I mean, we come back with supernatural stories when we're willing to go low and be weak. I mean, I think that's the biblical pattern. Um, God shows up in those places. Man, that's powerful <laughs> stuff. That's that's the biblical <laughs> pattern, but that's not usually the pattern of the church in the United States. Uh, tell, tell us a couple, you know, stories. I mean, what some examples of people's lives, people you ran into, maybe even people who didn't especially like you when you first met them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, the weaker we're willing to become and the more foolish we're willing to look, uh, the more disarming it is, you know, to the, to the community. And to this day, many people in the community tell us that it was us just walking around and being present that really caused their guard to go down. But I'll give you an early example of where I just recognize my my lack of faith and the difference in this being a story about what I could do and, and this being a story about what God could do. I mean, so early on in this low-income neighborhood that we were working in, um, I remember interacting with a mom who had just had a baby. Uh, the family did not have adequate health insurance. And this baby was born with significant health issues. And uh, me and one of my friends from college who had moved into the community with us was making a visit because we had, we had met this, this family through our program. And she asked us to pray for the, for the baby. And it was just one of those moments, I'll never forget it, where I just recognized that although I had translated out of the Greek stories about Jesus healing people, that did not seem to have too much effect on me at this moment and, and my faith and how I would respond. And so I kind of responded just with a nice pastoral response, like, okay, we'll make sure, you know, that we pray and we walked off. And I just thought to myself, this cannot be what, what this is about, you know, like me uh, giving answers that make me look uh, competent or something but not really entering into the pain, you know, of other people. And I remember walking off and it just, it just felt like the Lord said to me, like, who do you think I am anyway, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, when, when we realized how in over our heads we were in the community, something new got birthed in us in prayer. And we really just entered a season of praying and asking God to um, close the distance between our experience in the community and our Bibles. Um, it was like, there's just too much in this book that we have not experienced, you know, in our church life and in, in the community. 
And so just as one example, what that turned into was us praying for the sick, you know, out on the streets. And just when people asked us to pray, to go ahead and pray and to expect that Jesus might show up. And we started to come back with stories of healings. I mean, I feel like most of the people we pray for uh, still do not get healed, you know, on the spot. Um, but it took us on a journey, you know, of expecting Jesus to actually show up in the lives of people um, when we prayed. And as we started to come back with those stories, that's just one example of something that really changed our church. I mean, it's like, it's one thing if we can make Jesus make sense inside of a church sanctuary, but if, if he doesn't make sense out there on the streets in the pain of people's lives, then we don't believe in anything, you know, but we do, but what we believe in is real and he's out there working, you know, and, and uh, eager to work in people's lives. And so that's just, that's just one example of, of where we started to change and see people's lives change. So give us um, an example of, I mean, the kind of stuff you've been doing with young people in the community, trying to help pull people out of poverty, whatever. Just tell us another story. So early on, we started this educational day camp program, and we still run that. It's our 17th summer, you know, operating that through this organization, Aliquip Impact. As I said, I'm no longer the executive director there, but I'm still involved in that. Over time, we became really interested in long-term relationships with kids and families. So we developed a, a program called the Future Anticipated Cohorts. And so what we do is we cluster kids together uh, when they're young, typically like third and fourth grade into a cohort. And they have a cohort leader that really walks with them. And we walk with them through high school graduation. So our original cohort, um, all of those, uh, the original boys that were in, in my cohort led with me and a friend of mine from college. They're all like 24, 25 years old now, you know, and we've seen um, some of those guys you know, come to Christ and be baptized, you know, and, and following Jesus, we're still involved in their discipleship. Um, others, uh, not at all, you know, but we're still walking with them and we're still who they call, you know, when there's something deep happening in their life. But we realize that these long-term patient plotting investments were going to be what was needed in our community, that there just weren't shortcuts or magic solutions, you know, to what our community was was facing. And Jesus was patient enough to walk with these families, you know, over, over all these years. So we were just joining him in that. So that's pretty cool. You're kind of singing my tune. I think that things take time. I think that we often position ourselves as kind of policemen in a way. We want to hurry up and, and, and breed holiness in people's lives one way or another. And usually we're focused on behaviors and we just really need to focus on what the Lord said to do, which is to love him and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And uh, it's amazing what good comes out of that. I came upon your um, your website. I want you to talk about a couple things here that are really important. One is, it's called Hope is Protest. I think I know what that means. I've read a little bit of it, actually. But I want you to tell us, uh, you know, what, 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 what is the driver when you put that thing together? Yeah. Well, for me, that's really coming out of, I think, what is the theological vision of the New Testament, you know, which is an eschatological vision, right? That, you know, I, I, I started this by saying that we were building on the past of, of our church's legacy, which is true, but there's also a deep, maybe more profound sense, which we're building on future realities, you know, we're building on the future, you know, breaking into the present. 
And that's what hope is, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's uh, the future promises of the kingdom and its fullness breaking in in Jesus's ministry by his spirit now. And I think that when we live as a people of relentless hope, which I don't say that in a cheap way, to live as a people of relentless hope means that we form faithful communities that know how to lament, um, that know how to grieve, you know, with what is not the fullness of the kingdom, you know, Um, it means we enter into all of the pain, you know, of that struggle. But when we choose to be a people of hope, our lives, our way of being in a city actually protests, you know, the, the hopelessness that is present there. And I love to say that 90% of what we do is just show up, you know, and in our showing up, create or open up, I'm not even create, just open up the space, um, you know, for God to do the part that only he can do. But our showing up, particularly in a community that has been abandoned by empire, really is a protest, you know, because it's like, we are choosing to be witnesses that Jesus is on the margins of empire, um, calling people to himself and demonstrating, you know, his healing and deliverance and salvation in places that empire, you know, doesn't even consider worthy, you know, of attention. That's our heart in that, you know, I minister in a context uh, that has largely been forgotten by empire, not just Aliquippa, but as we're, as we're now multiplying regionally, you know, all throughout the Ohio Valley, the Monongahela River Valley, the Allegheny River Valley, all these towns that kind of the narrative is their best days are behind them. But these have been places where it's been easy for us to discover Jesus because he has not forgotten these places, you know? And so we just want to keep showing up there and being witnesses to what Jesus is doing, you know, in people's lives. So So what you just said um, about the places that are forgotten by empire helps in my mind to bridge over to your role in uh, operating a greenhouse in your denomination, raising up church planters, Mm -hmm. your whole life, uh, to me, represents a, a, a life of, if, if, if hope is protest uh, against despair and against the, the discouragement that, that culture seems to put on certain peoples. One of the, the things that frustrates me in, in my vantage point, from my vantage point, of the world of church planting, it, I, I guess an allegory would be all the guys that came to me while I was in Hawaii. And by the way, when I moved to Hawaii, I moved to a place, <clears throat> our church is located in a place where it rains 140 inches a year. Um, okay. Los Angeles gets 18 inches. So <laughs> we're getting almost 10 times the rain of Los Angeles. Portland, Oregon gets 52 inches. So we're getting almost three times the amount of rain as the rainy Pacific Northwest. So we were not there on holiday. But I would have guys come to me over and over with a call in their life to Kahala, which is the Beverly Hills of (laughs) Hawaii. They're there on vacation, show up in church. Can you help me? Uh, I think God's calling me, and he's calling me to Kahala. And it's like, go away. How are you finding it that you're you're inspiring younger people? You're looking toward bringing hope to desolate communities in some situations, and it's working. In in a in a world where church planters tend to want to go to upper middle class areas or resort communities, uh, this is working. Talk to us about that. Talk us through that. Yeah, I mean the most basic thing I can say about that is that Jesus really is so wonderful and His love is so impressive 
that when it's put on display, it will draw people, you know? Um, you know, when we started Aliquip Impact, it was me and my, some of my friends from college, you know, that did that first summer day camp program. Every summer since then, so 17th year, we hire a staff of college students. This uh, pattern of hiring college students has become part of our story over the years. I think between 50 and 60 of those college students relocated to our community after college graduation to be part of what was happening. And the vast majority of them, especially early on, now it's a little bit different because as our network of missional outposts has grown, there's there's more places to creatively get employment. But early on, there was none of that. I mean, I was barely getting paid, you know? And, um, and so, you know, college students would just, or, or recent college graduates would just find jobs and they just wanted to be part of what Jesus was doing. And I've had many pastors ask me, you know, how are you drawing these millennials? How are you drawing these Gen Z leaders? I can tell you this, it's not by being cool um, because we don't live in a, like a very cool, you know, part of the country. And honestly, the gospel tabernacle was not and is not very cool, you know, by some people's standards of cool. But there is a sense that what's happening is of divine origin, right? That that Jesus is doing something. And I just believe that Jesus knows how to draw people to himself, you know, to the work. He knows how, you know, to, you know, call people, you know, to the harvest. For me, like I look at our community, we're on the edges of empire. We're in a forgotten corner of empire. And I think, why not here? I mean, so much of the biblical narrative happens in those spaces. I mean, it's where we would expect Jesus to show up, you know, we, it's our joy to declare Jesus, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, most powerful and influential places of empire. But I think the biblical narrative would cause us to expect there to be more movement and harvest in the margins, you know, and so why not go there, you know, and, and find Jesus in those places. And, I just love flipping the narrative in those places and saying this place is wonderful because Jesus is at work here. You know, there is not a, a major spiritual awakening in history that has happened uh, at, in the upper echelons of society in, in its in its seed form. It's always been mm-hmm. the downtrodden. It's always been to the oppressed. That's where Jesus seems to want to work the most. Mm-hmm. Well, and Ralph, I would say too, it's it's part of um it's part of apostolic movement, right? Like in the New Testament, right? That this is one of the things that that Paul urges, right? Is that the poor would not be forgotten. And I think it's a marker of Jesus's move in a place. Like it's not that he only loves the poor, but he's he's not going to pass them over. You know, people wanted to. Um make contact with you what are some easy avenues if they got some questions they want to follow up you go through a church website or through your personal website what what will we do yeah so i mean one way is through just this little blog i have you know which is hopeisprotest.com i just want to say thanks for taking the time to do this um i was excited when i got to meet you and hear your story and more excited about today Thank you so much for having me. It's been great uh, getting to know you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.